chaos engineering is not done to produce outages, it's to actually like lower the downtime that your company has. It comes with the idea that everything is gonna break. Therefore, you should just actually break it on purpose so you can dissect where the failure can occur. We still have a very long way to go just because we're still doing operations in a very reactive sense. I think that's exactly where like observability and chaos engineering kind of come together. Hi, I'm Liz Fong Jones. And I'm Charity Majors. And you're listening to Observability Cast, a monthly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. Ollicast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Ollicast. That's O-11-Y-C-A-S-T, Ollicast. Anna, you're a software engineer. What drew you to chaos engineering and the broader operability side of the house? It was just completely different to me. I actually come from a self-taught background. I started coding about 12 years ago. This was just building like static websites, HTML, JavaScript. Then that followed into like a freelance business with some mobile app development, which then led me to drop out of college, like my second or third year. But I was always very focused on the software layer, and I never really had any mentors in the space of systems or network that can kind of even told me to look into this. So I actually stumbled upon operations when I joined Uber as a software engineer, except I was placed on the SRE team. Wow, they just threw you into the deep end, didn't they? Yeah, they definitely did. And I, I think it was very much of like, hey, you want to be an intern at Uber? Well, we're going to make you the first SRE intern. And that kind of means that you come in as a software engineer and we kind of figure out your role as you go, which turned out to be crazy and really interesting. I was placed on call in my third week at the company. Yeah. So then that made me kind of like ramp up really fast on a lot of system skills that you just kind of needed, as well as understanding like microservices and distributed systems. But at least I had a lot of like really smart-minded folks around me that I was able to get into rooms and be like, hey, can you explain to me how like distributed systems work and microservices? So basically it wasn't so much a choice as you were dropped in the deep end and went, oh, okay, it's fine here. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, this seems like a good time to introduce yourself. My name is Anna Medina. I currently work as a chaos engineer at a startup based out of San Francisco by the name of Gremlin. We currently focus in building a chaos engineering platform. Awesome. And you might also recognize the voice of my new co-host. Hi, I'm Liz. I'm the new co-host with Charity of Observability Cast. Thank you so much to Rachel Chalmers for starting the podcast. Our episode with Liz was, I think, our most popular episode to date. So, kind of and like an also addition. now I work at Honeycomb. And also now we're coworkers. <laughs> it's so great. Back to the topic of the day. So you're working on chaos engineering now. Were you also dropped into the deep end on that, or did you gravitate towards it because you loved it? No, I actually also got dropped into chaos nice. engineering. It I'm was all like, about like opportunism, like yay. I've definitely always had the mindset of just put me in coach. And definitely that's kind of like what fell into the place of when I joined Uber. It was very much of like, hey, we need someone to be doing chaos engineering, be software Gremlin, engineering. Gremlin though, Gremlin is a choice you made. Yes, yeah. So Gremlin was... what, tell me about Gremlin and, and chaos engineering over there. 
Yeah, I've been at Gremlin for about a year, and I joined due to a mentor of mine in the space already, Tammy Buto. She's a principal SRE for Gremlin. She had been recruiting me for like about three years. She's like, Tammy's very persistent. <laughs> yeah, she definitely was like, hey, I see that you kind of want to work somewhere else. It's something that we had talked about. And she's like, how about joining this company that I'm at? And I was like, wait, what do you all do? She's like, chaos engineering. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that thing that I used to do at yeah, Uber. Yeah, totally your jam. <laughs> totally your yeah. jam. And I was like, you know what? I'm down to go break some stuff again. Totally. So let's, let's well, go do this breaking thing. Breaking stuff. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, so in the intro of the podcast that we just recorded, we talked about making things appropriately reliable. So how does breaking stuff fit into that? Yeah, it definitely just comes with the idea that everything is going to break. Therefore, you should just actually break it on purpose so you can actually dissect the parts where the failure can occur and you're able to kind of set up time to focus on those issues. And it's like, we but you can only this. break it in the ways that you predict, the problems that you predict you're going to have. Aren't those the easy ones? That's correct. You will never be 100% covered from failure. It's definitely one of the things that I think in the space we're still trying to grasp onto. And it's like, how do we get to that point of doing this properly? So in a sense, you can think about like, okay, how have my systems and software broken up to this point and kind of like do chaos engineering on those. So but it's basically I also, like unit tests for production. I think that's a good way to put it for like someone that doesn't understand the space, but yes. But I would say that it, you can also take it into the point that you can go read on different outages that have happened at other companies and it's like, okay, let's form a chaos engineering experiment on the knowledge that this company has shared openly about what has happened there and you can kind of make sure that you're predicting what can happen in your own systems. Yeah. I really love that idea of similar to how Chef taught us that we could borrow infrastructure from other companies and apply it in our infrastructure, right? That we don't have to wait for failures to happen for the first time in our infrastructure before we figure out how to deal with them, that we can introduce them by learning from that experience of other people. That's really cool. So what role does observability play in this, though? Like, you know, can I do chaos engineering without observability, or how does observability intersect? Yeah, I definitely say that you want to have some type of uh, observability monitoring in place be before you do chaos engineering, because there is no point on doing chaos engineering when you actually don't know how your system is behaving at your current state before you inject chaos. So that might be just even having like standard system metrics of just knowing like your CPU load, uh, like what processes are running and things like that, just to, to at least get to the point where you're actually able to... I would say to, that if you have, all you have is monitoring, as Martin Fowler would say, you're not tall enough to ride this ride, you're not ready to start breaking your systems yet because there's going to be this long, thin tail of effects, you know, chaos effects, if you will. And I've heard of people like running a chaos experiment and then 10 days later realizing that some node was stuck in a broken state ever since then. And in order to be able to quickly find those outliers, those things that actually broke, these high-level system ag aggregates are not going to help you at all. You actually need to have observability the way that you know we define it in the, in the control theory way of being able to ask any question, being able to break down by any level of granularity you know, to see each and every component or how it's behaving for each and every user. Yeah, no, I definitely completely agree with that as like being able to like know exactly what call was done and being able to like Otherwise, trace it completely it's, back. It's just breaking, you know, <laughs> if you're not if you're not breaking and learning, then it's yeah, just breaking. Yeah, no, I, I agree on that. It would just definitely be that I think that every company and every team is sometimes at different states mm -hmm. that I think they do need to start somewhere else. That like those first baby level steps come out to be like, okay, we can actually do chaos engineering by just having some out of the we? box things. I'm I think it's interesting that the idea of 
you know, chaos engineering as chaos engineering, right? Like, you know, are we asking questions? Do we know that we'll be able to measure the answers to our questions, right? And I think that it's interesting to talk about monitoring versus observability there, and that monitoring might tell you, hey, you completely broke everything, you need to roll back, right? But it won't tell you, was your rollback completely successful? It won't tell you kind of what did we break along the way, right? And give you that high-resolution data into what are the after effects, right? Like, what happened during the experiment, aside from everything broke, right? Like, and that's <laughs> and that's kind of you know the place where you need to figure out how do we shore things up next time, right? And yeah. I think that's the engineering part that's kind yeah, of missing. Yeah, and I and I think it's like it's just still constantly evolving. I think we're only in the preliminary stages of like talking about chaos engineering, seeing it be done at different scales, not just the Uber scale, the Netflix scale, the Amazon scale, whereas like smaller companies are trying to pick it up. My personal take on it is very much on the, it's good to still kind of like inject that failure early on, even when you don't have that build out observability tool, just to kind of like know how things are going and to know that you're headed. You You won't know. If you don't have the observability, you won't know. You'll yeah. know that things broke, but you won't necessarily. You might, yeah, yeah, yeah you won't. Yeah, you won't know. Eventually, like the, the ten-day trace that you mentioned earlier that definitely is like you won't get unless you have that observability that or that open tracing tool that can call it out. So you talked earlier about how you made the transition from being a dev into learning op stuff. How do you see the evolution of? software engineers in terms of starting to think about the production consequences of their code. <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's fascinating because, I mean, I came from that mentality of like, oh, my code works on a machine, that's all I need to care about. I'm going to check it in, someone's going to deploy it for me, I shake my hands and I go to sleep happily. I don't have to worry about getting paged. And I love the theory of having to put devs on call for their own software for that same reason because it totally changes your mind in the way that you build stuff. You actually are like, okay, actually let me make sure that I'm doing those edge cases testing of like, okay, am I even checking for like a memory leak or like any thread that continues running to the point of like, is this software allowed to be deployed in a part where things like auto scale for me in case this kind of like goes really, really well. So it's like when you start giving devs like that mentality of like, hey, if you actually don't set things up properly, you're going to be the one that has to wake up in the middle of the night and figure out what's going on I and think then of it is fix less it. ops and more reality. You don't know your code if you just know it in your laptop. Like you can think you know your code, but you don't know it until you've watched it run on real infrastructure with real <laughs> users talking to it. Like you have no idea what piece of crap you wrote. Speaking of testing and real infrastructure, what is your thought on testing in stage versus testing in prod? I'm 100% on set for testing on prod. I think we should all be testing on prod. You can never create an environment that's going to be as like production. Like You can get close to it, but it's never going to have every single little identical thing as much as we try doing it. So I 100% support testing in production. And then when it comes to like the topic of doing chaos engineering on staging and production, I very much love telling folks like, okay, let's go, let's do chaos engineering in production. But at the same time, like you also don't want to run a chaos engineering experiment if you know it's going to break production. Do people so, actually run chaos engineering in staging? Yes. 
at Uber, we were running chaos engineering at staging. And then now at Gremlin, we have a few customers that, had, that started with running chaos engineering experiments and, and staging first. And it was just kind of like to verify things and are chaos going. chaos engineering experiments, just to clarify, it's things like intentionally breaking the network connectivity or making the network connectivity lossy for a period of time, that sort of thing, right? Making disk go away. Yeah, it includes various things of like, okay, what happens if I shut down my server, my container, or actually like change the system to black holing certain ports, to actually just injecting latency into calls. Yeah, exactly, right? Like we had an outage a while ago in which we had our MySQL servers get slow and then that caused a cascading failure. And that would have been a really cool thing that we would have known that was a failure possibility if we'd experimented with that in a controlled service. If you had thought to experiment. Yes, if we had thought to experiment, which is always the hindsight bias. Yeah, and I think it's like we are... We're trying to get folks to share more a little bit about like what chaos engineer experiments they're doing at their companies. Um, at Gremlin, we're going to be pushing out uh, how we're running game days internally. I think we actually just released the first one today that is like, hey, we actually want to test how we're doing monitoring on our staging environments doing like chaos engineering. So we kind of like started doing that in the preface of like, hey, we want folks to be sharing about what ideas they're thinking. That way we can also continue thinking about them without having to wait for that. Postmodern yeah, to I, be I really out. I think that it's like, like when I think about the traditional way that a monitoring system would uh, mature, like you would build a system, you look at it, you would predict the ways it was going to fail, right? And then you'd monitor for those things. And I guess nowadays, like you would add, you know, chaos engineering tests for those things. And then over the course of the next year or so, as you ran it, you would gradually encounter more and more of the rare events. And then you would add monitoring checks for those. And then you would, you know, add. I guess chaos regression test basically just to make sure that you don't regress there. And then like I guess what's left is the long thin tail of things that almost never happen that you can only really, you know, this is where observability comes in is the the ability to introspect and ask any question. Do you need to test for every failure? In an ideal world, yes, but I think it's kind of like goes to that point that you mentioned earlier is like you can't predict every single failure. Do you test do you include things like uh, testing um, user behavior? Like injecting users that are doing abusive things to your platform? Chaos engineering can definitely add on to that. I feel like we can get to a point that a chaos engineering experiment can include like what actually happens on the infrastructure plus injecting that user load. What is the difference between a test and a chaos engineering experiment? In terms of chaos testing versus no, chaos engineering? Just, what, what is the difference? Like, Can I just use these terms interchangeably? Yes and no. I think chaos engineering is a part of testing, but I think it goes more into the resilient space of actually just pushing things to the edge. Um, right. One specific test, though, right? Like if I decide that I'm going to have 1% of queries suddenly take twice as long, right? And I set that up, is that a test or is that an experiment or is that both? I think you can call it both. My personal take on it is that a chaos engineering experiment can have more than one test. Um, well, the first wave of DevOps, uh, I would say, was ops learning to write code. We have received the message, like, we all write code now. And like I feel like the second wave, we've been on for a couple years now, and it's like inviting software engineers, like, it's your turn, right? Time to learn about operability and what happens after you push deploy. Like, How far do you think we are into that transformation? Where do you see the industry these days? I think we still have a long way to go, but I would say that I would give credit to how far we've come. I've been in tech for not as long as many folks, like it's still just like 10 years, and in the operations space, only like three years. And even in just this three years, I just saw a lot more folks being open to sharing their failure, just like how they learn more about the things that's going on. But 
realistically, I think we still have a very long way to go just because we're still doing operations in a very reactive sense versus kind of like thinking more of that proactive sense. And I think that's exactly where like observability and chaos engineering kind of come together. It feels like the argument is over. Like everyone accepts now that this is where we need to go, but we aren't sure how to get there. And that just kind of has and to be I fought out. And I think that's where your one. point about us talking to each other is super, super important, right? Like I co-chair SRECon fairly often, and I think a lot of the value of that event is getting people on board with understanding, okay, you know, I accept that I should do this. How do I get started, right? And also if for people who are experienced, what's at the forefront, right? How can we keep pushing at this rather than doing the same things over and over? Yeah, definitely. I think that sharing culture has continued. Consensus, like driving consensus on core like questions of the day. I think this also just also goes really hand in hand with like the DevOps movement, SRE movement, and those things kind of like here we have more resources of how larger companies have done this. Let's write huge books on it that would kind of like tell you, hey, in this chapter, we're going to talk about how you can get started on just monitoring, just on logging, just on observability, just on on-call. And it kind of puts it up in like little smaller pieces that if you're a small startup that only has like three engineers, you can still kind of be like, hey, I want to be better in operations and implement some of the SRE model but I don't have the bandwidth to implement the entire Google SRE model. Nor should you. Yes, (laughs) exactly. So I think we're getting there. To jump back a little bit about testing and prod versus stage, what about game days? Right. If you know you're going to need to leave a system in a broken state for someone to fix, is that a staging thing? Like, If you are testing, can our engineers figure out how to, for instance, bring up Kafka after it's gotten horribly stuck and crashed, right? Oh, yeah. I'm a huge believer, just because I've been burned by this, of like using chaos engineering to make sure you have really strong runbooks. And game days kind of comes in into that mindset where it's like you get your engineers together, you're performing these experiments, but at the same time, you're going to be using the runbooks you wrote 200 days ago and you're going to want to be updating those because maybe you realize that you even forgot to pass a flag or you can actually do this better by doing it in a different command and then be able to just validate that that is like, okay, crap, I just broke down Kafka, but if I actually do these five different commands like this, I will actually be able to like bring it back. Right, so it kind of reduces the pressure and gives you an environment in which to you know think about the technical debt that's your documentation, right, to update your documentation that's gotten stale. You know, Charity and I have, have sometimes gone off and provocatively said, you know, staging is dead, don't use staging. But, like, you know, I, th- I think that it's important for us to have this conversation, too, about what is staging useful for and yeah. what is it not. What is the new usefulness of staging? Yeah, not what's the, the new usefulness of staging? Yeah. Which is not, you know, can we reproduce every possible user failure? Because you can't. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like definitely staging could be that good one where it's like you're definitely putting those production outages to the test just to make sure your documentation doesn't fall under tech debt. And that way you're also, it's muscle memory to an extent. Like not all of on-call is muscle memory because you will be encountering new things. But I think there's a part where it's like, oh, okay, I've kind of done this before because I prepared for it in a game day setting. Yeah, it's like the usage of tools is a muscle memory, even if the specific combination of tools that you put together right, is novel every time. And this is one of the things that we've struggled with with Honeycomb is that people tend to assume Honeycomb is for the difficult, gnarly problems such that people don't really get fluency with it unless they use it every day. Yeah, and like people are so used to the idea that 
that they don't know what's going on with their code in production, and that's okay. Like that, that's the way it's supposed to be. Which, like, once you've had the experience of being able to see, like, it's it's impossible to go back. Like, this is why, like, our best customers are typically like people who are leaving their job, going to a next company, and they bring us with them, because it's impossible to go back to just like blindly shipping and crossing your fingers. But like, most of the world hasn't had that experience yet, so yeah, they don't know what they're missing. Yeah, it's definitely a thing is like back to that earlier question of like we're still really early into the stages of these two topics. And it's like until we start getting more smaller companies involved and talking people about it. People need to like, raise their standards too. Like people need to expect more from their tools. <laughs> this is not <laughs> that's, that's really acceptable. So Anna, if I am a company that wants to get on board the chaos engineering train, like how do I get started and convince my executives that this is a safe thing for me to do rather than, oh my God, you're introducing more outages, we can't possibly have that. Yeah, you can definitely start with the fact that chaos engineering is not done to produce outages, it's to actually like lower the downtime that your company has, as well as the money that you spent into it. But I think there's like a few things that you have to keep in mind. It's like those prerequisites of doing chaos engineering is like having that monitoring and observability in place being the number one thing. And then second of all, you want to make sure that you're either going to be using a platform or building your own tool that has a big shiny red button that kind of like lets you stop any chaos engineering experiment that's currently going on and safely roll back to a steady state, as well as thinking about the blast radius. It's like, if you actually don't know how this chaos engineering experiment is going to go on four of your hosts, you don't want to be running this on a hundred of your hosts either. So kind of thinking about like, how do I do this in a very small way and proactively increase it as the chaos engineering is successful, as well as you also want to come up with those abort conditions and write them down and let your engineers know. Is like if we actually see that we have lost like twenty percent of our users, like let's stop the chaos engineering experience. Right, exactly. That you may want a service level objective or something to tell you that you're hurting your actual users rather than just conducting the experiment without causing harm. And it also is really interesting to think about things. Like if I'm running an experiment on a small subset of hosts, how do I tell what's the difference in behavior between what's going on in those hosts that I'm experimenting with and the control group as you were? Yeah, I mean, I think SLOs is a great way to to start off when you're doing something like this because then you can also think of like, okay, what's my error budget for this quarter? And then use that error budget to do chaos engineering in production. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense that if you agree in advance what your error budget is and it's not zero, right? It makes it a lot easier to argue for, yes, we can afford to cause a little bit of pain and have the safety measures to roll back. Because fundamentally, you need, like, since you're, as you say, um, your systems are broken always. Like, there's so many things that are broken right now that you don't know about or you suspect, but you haven't been able to find. And that means that as people running those systems, we need to be constantly practicing small failures too. Practicing how to recover from them, often in code, but like sometimes not, because that's what, you know, it helps you train your team, it helps them practice, uh, it helps them not freak out when something goes wrong, it gives them, you know, experience in recovering and rolling back to no good state or how, whatever your practices are. So I think that's just as important as the software side. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about rollbacks as well because a lot of the pain that we've seen people talk about are, you know, oh, rolling back is not <laughs> as simple as five minutes. It's like, okay, we could accept that you can't roll back in five minutes or we can actually dig into that and say, what stops you from not being able to roll back in five minutes, yeah, right? It's like, how can we actually make this better? And I think it's kind of what you mentioned earlier is like we just have to have higher standards for our tools and our infrastructure. And for our, uh, the amount of self-abuse that we accept. You know, we often... 
especially on the op side, like we have this long history of throwing ourselves on grenades, just like, I will suffer through this, which is just not good for us. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's, it's great to also be talking about that. it's not good for the systems either. Yeah. Like, it's not good for anyone. That also brings us to the stereotypical example, right? Like of the disc got full, right? It's like, do we need to throw ourselves on that grenade? What if we purposefully fill up the disc and verify that the world does not end? What if we could absorb a lot of full discs and it could be okay until morning when someone wakes up and wants to deal with it? It's like, gets to a point where it's like, okay, we have managed to auto scale our disc in a sense that, like, now, hey, on call is 10 in the morning. You've maybe had your coffee. Can you look at me now? Exactly. Yeah, kind of getting things out of being crises in the middle of the night and transforming them into problems that we can think about when we're awake is Support just problems. such a radical transformation. Yeah, Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming. It's been really fun to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for this conversation. If you're interested in being a guest on a future show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. That's O-1-1-Y-Cast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tool companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.